You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Today we're going to be reading on Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up there. If you, don't, if you find yourself without a Bible this evening, see the last time I said morning there. If you, have, you find yourself without a Bible this evening, that's totally fine. There should be a Bible somewhere underneath a seat around you. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, consider that a gift from us to you this holiday season. But again, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when you have gotten there, go ahead and stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's word this evening. Again, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that that they had seen when it rose uh, went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas to you. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, if you're a guest with us this evening, we're so glad you're here. Thanks for making us a part of your Christmas. We hope you enjoy yourselves. Uh, we have cookies and milk for you afterwards, okay? So if I do nothing else well, all right, I still gave you a gift. Okay, there you go. <clears throat> In the name of the Lord. So uh, we're also going to be celebrating. I know Scott's going to mention it later, but um, we're going to be celebrating as normal. Uh, we're going to have a gathering tomorrow, but we only have our 9 a.m. because we're doing family inclusion, but we'd love it if you came. Uh, worship with us on Jesus' birthday. You can come out and uh, we'll have fun. So Scott mentioned this, but we've been in a series throughout Advent kind of doing a side-by-side of Old Testament patriarchs with the person of Christ. And the series is called True and Better because we spent all of uh, the month of, or the year of 2022 in Exodus. And so he said, okay, let's go through the Old Testament and show how Jesus is the true and better fulfillment of all these things we see. And in particular, in the lives of the people, the patriarchs and their offices and functions. And so that's what we've been doing through Advent. And uh, so we've gone through, uh, Jesus is the true and better Adam. Jesus is the true and better Abraham. Jesus is the true and better Moses. And I'm tasked with Jesus is the true and better David. And there's no better time to do it than on Christmas Eve uh, when Jesus was born in the city of David, the city of Bethlehem. So what I'd like to do is pray for us, ask the Lord to speak to us through his word as we celebrate the birth of Christ this evening. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. Father, we are just so grateful that we are not a people without hope, but on this Christmas Eve, we are reminded of the abiding hope that is in your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you that you over 2,000 years ago, 
came from heaven to earth, living a perfect life, dying a vicarious death, rising again, that we might have eternal life, everyone who believes in you. And we thank you that that's as true and as sure as the sun will rise tomorrow. Thank you, my God, that we have that hope sure and steady. But this evening we ask in particular, my God, would you help us to get beyond what is a religious observance, what's a tradition, and and Lord, we ask that you would move on our hearts, that you would shape us and mold us this evening by your power of your word, that we might be more like you. And uh, most, of, most of all, my God, that you might stir our hearts and affections for worship uh, so that we might lead our families in that way and in so doing glorify you, my God. We, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. So because you're here, I'm assuming that everything went okay with you on the freeze. I, I am sorry if that's not the case. Like if you're here a little bit grinched out because you're, you're like, no, I'm here, but it didn't go great. Or you're still holding out like me. And you're like, hey, it isn't over. So I don't know if it's going to work out, okay? I'm just glad that you're here. And the reason I say that is because if you've been around at Providence for any length of time, you know, like a little less than two years ago, the last freeze, uh, we thought we did everything right, you know, drain the pipes, you do the right things. Uh, but when the water started to thaw out, it burst our fire sprinkler pipe. And it, it burst and flooded the, not just, this is what the thing about fire sprinkler pipes is they are rated to pour out 500 gallons of water per minute. So that one poured out on Brendan's head as he was trying. There was a little leak, and I think that Mike was, had set a little trash can under the leak. And then Brendan just so happens to like hear a burst and then goes under it. And it's just, anyway, so it flooded all the way through there. We ended up having service at the old Jumbapalooza and it smelled like the trampoline park that it was. And, uh, but, but it was fine. But it, it made me think of, uh, as I was preparing for the sermon, I thought of that because the, the times, particularly for Houstonians, when you get a freeze like this, it's pretty chaotic, at least in my house running around trying to make sure we get all the pipes wrapped and you know you're you're dra- we were draining pipes for some friends I know our elders were talking and trying to make phone calls you know for people who are out of town or however we can help with getting people prepared you know you're dripping your faucets at night you're doing things you don't even know if they really work you've just heard that maybe if you pull your attic down maybe it might work you're opening up the shelving you know and then you wake up in the morning and hope that all is well like friends the, the first time I flushed my toilet after the freeze it was making you know some whale sounds and I was worried I didn't know if it was, if that was the end, you know, and it, it was looking at the water, trying to see if it's discolored. And as I was preparing for uh, tonight's sermon, I was thinking, this is like an ironic kind of funny, but sad picture of the way I feel like the last few years, maybe the last season has been for us living in the world, the chaotic world that we're living in. And, and I mean that at every level, you know, just, and let me try to explain a little more. There's lots going on, but there's not a lot of time to think about it. You're just kind of reacting to things. I don't know if y'all have noticed, like the news didn't seem to be so, I don't know, like major things like every three seconds or so. So just about the time you're like, did that really happen? It's like breaking news, you know, something else happened and you don't really know what to do with it all. So things that should be really a big deal, they're kind of like all thrown into one pot of like, don't know what to do with that. And uh, you're just trying to react to it the best you can. And then you're trying to live faithfully the best you can. But deep down, there's this feeling of like, I don't even know if any of this is going to matter because it probably could still go all badly. That's how the freeze is like. You know, you do all these things and you're like, still could be, you know, without a house in like three days. And that's kind of how it has felt. And the reason that I mention that is, if you can believe it, Jesus was born into a time of way greater strife and tumult than that, than the one we're living in. Jesus was born during a time in the Roman Empire where the Roman Empire was in constant flux. And here's the thing, even if you haven't read this story uh, recently, 
you know this intuitively without knowing that you know it because all of us are familiar with like, you know, Julius Caesar and Shakespeare and things like that, things that they forced you to read when you were in school. You know, the shadow of the infamous assassination of Julius Caesar still hovered over this time period because it was less than a generation away when Caesar Augustus began to rule and reign. If you remember, there was this power vacuum after Julius Caesar is betrayed. And then there's these major civil wars that go on. Who's going to take over the throne? And finally, you know, Caesar Augustus consolidates the power and he rules over the whole Roman world. And just a little part of that Roman world was a little country called Israel, a little nation called Israel, which was really kind of getting tossed around between empires after their exile. And that's where you find the story of Jesus. We know this because in the book of Luke, it says in the time of Caesar Augustus, he sent out a decree that the whole world would be registered. Well, why? That's a massive census, by the way. It's not like we complain about census. This is like you have to pick up your whole family and just travel to your hometown where you're trying to, and that's how you do the census. But we never think about how that would have been, I don't know, impacting us if it happened today. The whole point of that was taxation in order to prop up an empire that was kind of starting to see some cracks some crumbling at the edges, all right? And they needed more tax money for this crazy society. And then, not only that, but Israel itself was ruled by a guy named Herod. Herod had styled himself with the title king of the Jews, given to him by another Roman ruler. But he was not a good king. He was a brutal tyrant. He was a guy who used the children of Israel and and really abused the children of Israel to maintain his own power. I've told this story a number of Christmases, but if you want to look back on this guy, uh, King Herod, he was so uh, worried about losing his throne that he ended up conspiring to murder his own son, doing all sorts of things just to make sure no one really got his power. And this is the time that Jesus is born into. That's how, like, so when you read these, you know, we read them at, at Christmas time. It's like, this is a really crazy time. And then Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now the Jewish people this time, are they're looking for someone. They're looking for someone to bring them peace. They've been under occupation, almost feeling, you know, kind of like the, the old Egypt days. And that God had promised them that he was going to send them a Messiah. So they're looking for, you know, some sort of peace. And last week, Eric spent some time showing us how Moses was, or Jesus was the true and better Moses. But right here in this text, you see that depicted with a hitch. I want to explain to you what, what the hitch is. So if you remember in Moses's time, Pharaoh puts out an edict and says, any boy that breaks the womb will be murdered, right? He says, I don't want any of the male boys from Israel. I don't want them to live. And that's how Moses gets thrown down the Nile, remember, in the, in the reeds. And Pharaoh's uh, daughter ends up picking Moses up. Okay, that's the starting line of Exodus. It leads to the children of Israel fleeing Egypt out into the wilderness, which ends up the promised land. Now, here's the hitch of Jesus' story, is we get the same edict from Herod, who says all the children two years and younger, the boys, I want you to kill them. You can look in history. It's called the, the Massacre of the Innocents. Except Jesus flees from Israel to Egypt. So everything's upside down. Israel's not a place of refuge. Israel's the place you run from because it's become so corrupt, so tyrannical. And Jesus is not fleeing away from Egypt and the Pharaoh, but he's fleeing his own ruler into Egypt, the place of the Pharaoh. It's crazy. Everything's upside down. And I'm sure that you can jive with that feeling. Now, in the context, here's how this story is even crazier than you can imagine. Right at this time, Wise men come from the east. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can see there's a footnote. It probably takes you down. It says wise men, or it could be translated magi. What are magi? We can do a deep dive on this, and this is like many things in the Exodus. Basically, everybody disagrees, okay? But what we know is that they weren't, you know, not 
what we've always kind of been told. First, we don't know if it's three wise men. It's, they just had three gifts, so we've always assumed that they have three, you know, three gifts. Maybe one each had a gift, and we don't really know that for a fact. We know they're from the east because the Bible tells us that, but does that mean east like, I don't know, Beaumont is east of us or like New York City's east of us or like Jerusalem's east of us or like China's east of us? How far do you go? And nobody knows. That's why we have the song, you know, we three uh, kings of Orient be, but we don't know if it was from, they were from the Orient. Most people will say that, you know, this could have been Persian kings, Persian wise men, Persian magi. But what we do know is that they are astrologers, okay? Not Jewish astrologers. They're from another nation, pagan astrologers who have studied the stars so well, they know that there's a king to be born and they traveled a long distance to ask where so that they might come and see the king. Now, when you read that, you should think that is a weird story for the Bible to have, which we're going to get there at the end. But isn't that weird? The astrologers show up and they're asking about Jesus. And it just so happens that they come to the king of the Jews and say, hey, we heard there's a baby to be born king of the Jews. Not you, by the way. Where's he at? So what, is, what happens? Herod calls all the religious leaders in. He brings out the old dusty books called the prophets. And let's go to, this is Matthew chapter two. Let's read now starting in verse five. Herod says, well, where, what's the answer? They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So a few things. Number one, the baby's going to be born in Bethlehem. Number two, the baby's going to be a ruling king. Number three, the baby's going to be a shepherd king. Now, for us, we read that that's all fine and good. Every Jewish hearer knew who they were talking about. I want you to think back. What is Bethlehem? It's called the city of David. Well, who is David? He's the king who ruled the best, and he was a shepherd king. He was the one who was a shepherd in the field when he was called by God to be the king of Israel, defeating Goliath, right? They all knew that there was going to be a David-like king who came. Here's the thing. Here's why you can be so confident that that's true. The book of Matthew starts like this. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why David before Abraham? Didn't Abraham come before David? Matthew is telling you, I'm going to start with Abraham, but you need to know he's a king. That's the whole point of the genealogy, is to show you that Jesus is the son of David. Now, this unmistakable parallel would have been there for the Jewish people, but the reason this is a crazy story is how in the world do the Magi know it? They're not familiarized with this. They just saw a star and traveled, maybe for months, some people say, in order to see the baby. Now, I want to spend some time talking about two things. How is Jesus a better, a true and better David? How is he a better ruling king? How is he a better shepherd king? And the only way to do that is to talk about a little bit about David's life. The first thing we know, and as soon as I say King David, it probably comes to your mind, it's the story of David and Goliath. Now, we know that David had been anointed king by Samuel a chapter before that, and then he shows up onto the front lines, and Goliath is defying the armies of Israel. But this is a massive man. He's nine foot tall. He is a warrior. He's kind of their hero. If you've ever seen the movie Achilles, which is based off of some of the uh, Greek mythology and some of the old writings of the Greeks, you know, when Brad Pitt is fighting that warrior in the very beginning, and basically they say, you bring your warrior out and I'll bring our warrior out and they'll fight. And this was common in the, uh, the ancient world that rather than slaying all of our men by having massive battles, why don't you bring your best guy and I'll bring my best guy. And then one of them dies and then the rest of us submit. And that's what's happening when David shows up to Goliath, except Goliath is a much larger man, a much more skilled man. All the Israelite men are like, this is not, none of them want to challenge him. And of course, the story is that David defeats him with a slingshot and then with his own sword cuts his head off, right? It's this massive win. 
But that's not all. Sometimes we stop there. We think that's all that the Bible tells us about David as a warrior, and it's just not. The Bible's filled with David not only starting as a shepherd, but becoming a soldier, and then not just a soldier, but a commander, not just a commander, but a general, not just a general, but then a king who rules the army. He's mostly a warrior king in the Bible. That's what it tells us. Saul was the king before David, and they had a song about Saul and David. They say, Saul has killed his thousands. If the song stopped there, it'd be nice for Saul. But then the second line was, but David his tens of thousands. David united the kingdom of Israel, taking the throne. He pushed back God's enemies. This is 2 Samuel 8, by the way, if you ever want to go to it. He defeated the Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Ammonites, and the Syrian armies. Pushed all of the armies of the enemies of God out of the borders. This is a massive deal. 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse number 15. This is how it's described, uh, the, the life of David. David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Now that's the kind of stuff that's on like statues, okay? But when David administered justice, he administered justice. That meant with the sword too. He was a ruthless warrior. But he wasn't only that. He also was a man after God's own heart. We see that in the scriptures. He planned for the building of God's temple. He wanted God to have a permanent dwelling place. He was the first one to stand up after hundreds of years and say, why does God only have a tent and we've all built our houses already? Let's build a temple for him. It's hard to think that any Old Testament leader had the kind of reverence from all of the children of Israel for all generations like David did. If you talked about David, as far as kingship or ruler or governorhood, David was the peak. He ushered in the reign of Solomon, and the reign of Solomon was the greatest the Israelite empire had ever been, the wealthiest it had ever been. Now, if you've read the story of David, then you know that David is a mere man though, right? He's a mortal and he had many flaws. Some of those flaws are recorded in the scriptures and none are as famous as the story of Bathsheba where David conspires to kill one of his very own mighty warriors in order to cover his own sin. But nonetheless, what we see in the scriptures is that David was a mighty man. David was a mighty king. He was a great ruling king, but he was a ruling king in such a way that it left people room to believe that he wasn't the final ruling king, but that he was pointing to something. Like, for instance, David laid siege to the fortresses of God's enemies. He secured the kingdom of Israel and all of its borders. He even provided plans for the permanent temple, God's dwelling place with man. And yet, the Christian knows Christ did more. Christ lays siege to the real enemies of God. When Jesus is born in Bethlehem, he has an intention not to storm the citadels of Rome, but he is going to do battle cosmic battle with the real enemies of God, Satan, sin, and death, and he's going to win. And then he not only invades the fortresses of the spiritual enemies that they have built, but then he starts preaching sermons like the Sermon on the Mount where he says, hey, you also have fortresses you've built around your own heart. You have cooperated with the enemy and you're trying to keep me out, but I am going to get in there. He says, you've heard it said that you shall not murder, and I tell you that if you've been lusted in your heart. And he's starting to tell you, you've, you've built some fortresses that I intend to crack. He's coming in, and he is going to lay claim on the territory of your own soul. 
Colossians chapter number two, verses 13 through 15. I want to read these because perhaps there's no other verses uh, better than these three that give you that depiction of Christ both overcoming external and internal. Here you go. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's... Christ's death. So that's internal stuff, sin and guilt and penalty. Now watch this, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Those rulers and authorities, that's the same language Paul will later use in Ephesians chapter six to talk about spiritual rulers and authorities. There's this juxtaposition about Christmas that's interesting because you have the quiet night of the silent night of Christmas. And uh, we think about the manger and, and, the, and the quiet, uh, subtle songs. And yet what's happening there is it's the breaking through of a king that's going to conquer, the king that's going to defeat all God's enemies, the king that's going to crush God's enemies. You know, when you hold a baby, you don't, you don't typically say like, you are just going to be a sweet, conquering, ruling killer. You don't, right? They're sweet. They're babies. Listen to what Spurgeon says about this. Those little feet in the manger shall tread on the serpent's neck and crush his head. Isn't that crazy? That's the wildness of Christmas. Many theologians have tried to articulate this. Like J.I. Packer talks about how can they conceive that looking in the manger and looking at a little baby's eyes, that the universe existed in, the, in those eyes. That's what's happening at Christmas. The king has arrived. And he's not just any king. He's not just a king like David. He's a king better than David, a king that really reigns truly for the glory of God and for the good of others. You know, if you know yourself, you've looked at yourself in the mirror and you know that you may be a good man or a good woman, but only in part. None of us are good men and good women in full. Only Christ was. And he comes into the world here, not just to defeat all of the external factors that look to destroy humanity, you know, death, oppression, violence, malice, destruction. No, he also came to lay claim and to wage war against all the internal factors that seek to destroy you, sin and guilt and shame, alienation from God, hostility toward God. Christ came to wage war against them both. And so the answer to the restless longing of the human heart, which does exist, I want to say this, is not to say, stop longing like that, just sing the songs. No, it's to say, you need to look to the king to satisfy those longings and don't accept a substitute. Don't accept the fake kings, the ones like Herod that run around with crowns but have no ability to give you what you deeply need. You know, they're like the child that's building sandcastles on the shore. Yeah, it's sweet, but you wouldn't give them real power (laughs) because they might be able to use buckets, but what happens whenever they start wanting to use swords? No, Jesus is the one who deserves our allegiance. But what about the other side? See, the other side's really interesting. He's not just a ruling king, he's a shepherd king, which you you don't really hear very often. And David was this shepherd king. What what made him different than Saul? Well, 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, this is what God says to Samuel, or to Saul through Samuel, about the difference between Saul and David. He says, but now your kingdom shall not continue, Saul. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So the difference between David and Saul had to do with David's heart, the heart of a shepherd. That's where he was found when he was first anointed as king. 
And at his best, that's how David always led, was like a shepherd at heart. David's most famous psalm about shepherds is Psalm 23, which I'd like to read briefly to you because it has a way of articulating David's vision, not just of leadership that he tried to he tried to live out, but also this is David's vision of who God is. He says this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Well, what does this mean? A true shepherd king provides for all that you lack. And so I have to ask, are you lacking this evening? Do you feel an emptiness about you? Only the shepherd king can fill. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. The shepherd king and only the shepherd king can lead you to true rest and true peace. So are you weary this evening? Is your life tumultuous this evening? Only the shepherd king can meet that need. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Only the shepherd king can lead us to true spiritual restoration that's not just religious observance, but that is internal change. See, that's different, isn't it? Sometimes, and here we get, we're seven days away from this. Sometimes we can change our behaviors for some period of time. Only Christ can change you. Only the shepherd king can change you at your most fundamental levels. Many of us can follow the rules for a time, but only God can make you new. Only the shepherd king can do that. Only he can lead you in righteousness. So if your battle against sin has felt hopeless, the shepherd king is here in the manger at Bethlehem to remind you that you can't do that alone. Verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The shepherd king stays with us in our great times of difficulty and distress and he protects us from all the evil that seeks to beset us. Are you trudging through what feels like the valley of the shadow of death this evening? Has fear and anxiety, have they sought to own you, to really control you? If you've ever tried to fight back against them, some of us, we feel very proud because we've been successful, but others of us have experienced them like dragons and only the shepherd king can lead you out of fear and anxiety. And how does he do it? By his presence. He will never leave you or forsake you. Verse five. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. He exalts the lowly and he does so in the presence of those who even hate them. Have your enemies outnumbered your friends you feel like these these days? It's Christ who not only sets a table before us in the presence of our enemies, but then gives to us lavishly when our cup feels empty, when our cup feels dry, he fills it overwhelmingly so. Verse six, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Only a shepherd king can give you promises and provide for you hope that are not on the basis of wishful thinking, but on the basis of who he is and what he's done. See, this is the thing about God. The future hope that he gives us is on the basis of time after time after time after time of him being faithful. That's why in the scriptures it says, you know, I think it's in 1 Timothy, even if you're faithless, God will be faithful because he will not deny himself. It's his character. Now this was David's vision of God, but it was also his kingly vision of how he sought to lead. 
And I want you to think back on the story. This is, I mean, you don't have to turn here, but in John chapter number eight, in the very beginning, it's, I think it's one through 11, there's a story, it's a famous story of Jesus doing ministry and the Pharisees bring to him a woman who was caught in adultery. And there's much commentary on this. Most likely she's thrown, stripped and bare because she's been caught in the act of adultery and the law says she should be stoned to death. And they say, Jesus, you've been preaching with authority. What do you say here? And you get the famous line from Jesus who tells them what? He was without sin cast the first stone. Now, for those of, uh, those of us who are reading it, we think, oh, he just handled them, you know? But he laid out a version of his verdict that left room for her to be judged and condemned. Now, the men who were hearing this knew that they had not been without sin. They walked away. It's interesting, the Bible says oldest to youngest. So there's something about that, that the young guys were still sticking around thinking they might be sinless. <laughs> the, the longer you live, the less likely it is for you to believe that jargon. But nonetheless, they're all gone. And you got to think, she knows, at least at some level, he's still there. And the interesting thing about Jesus, he says it even at his crucifixion trial, is they know too that they can't convict him of sin. So there's still one. And here's the thing, and he's the one with all the authority. He's been preaching with authority. He's been preaching with power. He's been preaching with strength. And he's been preaching unashamedly about sin. And now she is naked and bare before him. And he's the only one who can judge her, condemn her. And if you haven't thought about this in your own life, I've thought about this very often. This is the state that every human being will be in when they stand before God one day, naked and bare. There's nothing between you and him and he knows all. And now you're at the judgment seat of Christ and the one who has the authority, the power. Jesus even said this. Why do you fear the people who can hurt your body and not the one who has the power over the body and the soul? And Jesus is that one. So now you think about it. She's in his presence here and it's maybe a little more intense. And of course we get what the scripture tells us is that he says to her, Daughter, has no one condemned you? She says, no, not one. I don't either. Now go and sin no more. And the reason I tell this story is because, see, the shepherd king is not that Jesus has stripped himself of all the authority and the power. No, he wields the authority and the power. It's just that right when you cringe, close your eyes, fearing for your life because you know what you deserve, you open your eyes and realize he has knelt down and he has reached his hand out to you and says, neither do I condemn you. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus in one of the most famous chapters in all the Bible, John 3. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him, the world might be saved. He said, I came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it. And that is the incarnation that God decided in all of his majesty to wrap himself in human flesh and be vulnerable like a babe to communicate to us that the king, the powers here, but the king has come tenderly to us, willing not to condemn us, but to save us. Our king is tender for us. He is tough. He is tender with us and he is tough for us, like a shepherd who fends off the wolves, but also cares for his flock. And this Christmas, that's really the story as he comes tenderly to you. And that's what it means when we sang earlier and Brennan was leading us when it says, come you to Bethlehem. You ever thought like, they're not inviting you to a Holy Land trip, you know? It's talking about coming in your soul and in, in your heart of hearts back to the nativity, back to origin sources, back to, the, back to the beginning, peering over the manger and considering what exists in this manger. What's this story? What's at the heart of the Christian faith? The belief that God became flesh. 
I love Christmas. I really do. I enjoy it. The 25th is the best day of the year. I love it. I'm a weirdo like that. I know some of you are like, you don't like those people. I'm one of those people. But I hate Christmas night because it's over. And I don't know if you guys feel that or have felt that, but it just, it almost starts at like lunch and I'm trying to fend it off. I just don't like the fact that this is over now, you know? And, and uh, the story of Christmas though is that the king has arrived and his kingdom has no end. You see, that's the, the wonder for the Christian. You see, David fought hard for his kingdom. He bled more than any other man had ever bled for his kingdom. He also shed more blood. God says this, you can't build my temple because your hands are bloody. You have shed more blood. And yet in the end, David's kingdom, the kingdom of Israel fell. It fell to the Babylonians, it fell to the Assyrians. There's very few artifacts you can even see of it. But Christ has won a kingdom that has no end. It's advancing even as we speak. And for the Christian, we should be yearning to hold this feeling of Christmas morning in our hearts all year round because when you wake up on the 26th, guess what? Christ reigns. His kingdom has no end. Your future is secure in him. And you're going to wake up and like like a child, he's going to be giving you gifts of fresh mercy all over again that you get to unwrap again. And you'll wake up again and he he does it again. And it'll all be new again, a gift to you. So how will we respond this morning? Well, the scripture has a few different responses. They find that Jesus, the king of the Jews, is going to be born. And, well, the chief priests are confused. And the Bible says that Herod is threatened. Uh, But it's interesting because the Bible also says that all of Jerusalem is troubled. But there's one thing that we miss in the scripture if we're not careful, and it's that there's one group of people that get it right, and they're the most unlikely people of all. It's the Magi. They're not even Jewish people. And what do they do? They go, they find Jesus, and they worship him. They bring gifts to him. They honor him. And there's really two major reasons for it. Number one, it's so that we don't come here and assume that because we have religious observances that we're all good because the chief priests had that. They had religious observances, but they weren't the ones who ended up getting it right. No. But the second reason is maybe the one that I want to focus on the most. It's that the Magi are the ones who get it right so that no one can preclude themselves from the invitation of Christ in the manger. It's like Paul said, God chose to save the chiefest of sinners, is what Paul said, so that in the future generations, he will show his immeasurable riches of his grace to all others. And they could never say, well, I'm too bad of a sinner to be saved. He said, well, no, you don't know me. That's what's happening here. The Magi are not those ones who were well-scripted in the Torah and the Bible. No, Christmas is an invitation from the king. And once he has given his invitation, he doesn't revoke it. And so this morning, we get to anchor ourselves to a kingdom that has no end, and we do it by faith. We do it by faith, believing in the Son of God. This can be the starting line for you this morning. I don't know if you've ever trusted in Christ, or maybe it's a renewal, but there's really only two options. We can be renewed at the manger, or we can be reborn. You see, for some of you who maybe have never trusted in Christ, it's peering over into the manger. And if you really consider it, what you're supposed to be considering is maybe God can make me new again. Maybe he can help me be born again. Maybe I can become like a child again. Maybe all that I have done can be washed away and I get to be like a child again in him. Or if you are a Christian in the room, it's for you to look back into the manger and see the joy that was here when he first caused you to believe, when he first called your name, when he first made you new again. 
That's what Christmas is all about. And it's not once a year thing, but man, what a wonderful time, isn't it, once a year to do this? I'm going to end with a C.H. Spurgeon quote because why not? And he says this about Christmas. As we think today of the birth of our Savior, let us aspire after a fresh birth of the Savior in our hearts. That as he has already formed in us the hope of glory, we may be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Listen to this. That we may go to the Bethlehem of our spiritual nativity and do our first works, enjoy our first loves, and feast with Jesus as we did in the holy, happy, heavenly days of our salvation. That's my prayer for us this evening. Let me pray for us. Father, what a wonderful gift it is for us to be able to celebrate Christmas. We're here this evening, and we confess to you, not merely as a religious observance, but we come because you are the king and we seek to, as the wise men did, we seek to bow before you and give homage to you, worship you because you are the king to which we swear our allegiance. If there be any of my friends under the sound of my voice that have yet to do that in their life, I do pray that tonight they would peer over into the manger and see the cosmos in the eyes of the Christ child with the eyes of their hearts open to them who you are, Jesus. Stand forward from your word. And as we sing, may the meditations of our hearts and the words that come from our lips match. We trust you, God. We love you. And tomorrow morning when we wake up, I pray that we would seek to hold that sense, that feeling of Christmas all year long as we rejoice in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.